Before we open God's Word, let's pray. Father in heaven, what a marvelous blessing you have lavished on us that we are called children of God. Come and minister to your children even now through the preaching of your word. We, uh, we wonder and we marvel that you've chosen to do your good work of gospel ministry through such foolishness of uh, preaching. You have been faithful time and time again, so come and fulfill your promises to us in the Lord Jesus to write the truth of your word upon our hearts. Teach us, Lord, what it is to cling to Christ above all else. Would you come and convict us as we consider sin and its consequences? Stir us up to hate it and teach us again to run to Christ for salvation. And we ask it for his sake. Amen. Open your Bibles to Revelation chapter... uh, No, nope, nope, that was this morning. That was this morning. Romans, another R in the New Testament, Romans chapter 1. Long day, but a very good day. The Lord is good. Romans 1, our text is verse 24 and 25. Hear God's word. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Amen. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy and inspired word. I really want to leverage that sense that I hope you feel as we come back week in and week out to this same section on sin. I want you to remember that Paul is spending a lot of time talking about sin and he's doing it on purpose. It's not that I'm taking so long to preach through it, though you may feel that way. It's that he spends so much time. He spills so much ink trying to convince us how really bad sin really is. Why? Because the gospel is good news that starts with bad news and ends with great news. You know, if, uh, if you hope to be cured of a disease, you necessarily need a diagnosis before the doctors can prescribe treatment. If you don't know what the problem is, how are you going to fix it? If we don't know, if we don't believe, if we don't trust that we have a sin problem, the gospel is of no use to us. One author says, as he thinks about mankind and as he thinks about us thinking about sin, he says, slight views of sin never lead to a fervent appreciation of grace. Slight views of sin never lead to a fervent appreciation of grace. We're we're always ready to excuse ourselves, aren't we? Always ready to treat sin lightly. Some of that is just because we don't like to think about our sin. But Paul didn't give us just one sentence on sin. He gave us almost two and a half chapters worth on sin. Paul doesn't excuse our sin. He doesn't think on sin lightly and neither... Should we? As we approach verse 24 and 25, it's important to think back up to the beginning of of this section in verse 18. 
Remember, he's writing about um, those who are apart from God. He's writing really about how all of us were at one time in our sin. Um, and and to, to a degree, how we still are even fighting against sin in the sense that we need to be aware of the dangers of sin. You can look back up and just kind of scan down with me. Look at verse 18. He began this treatise on sin for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Right? He's explaining why the righteous live by faith because they don't have any righteousness of their own. They must live by faith if you hope to be saved. Verse 21 as well, look, he, for although they, that is the, the unbelieving world, those apart from Christ, although they knew God, right? God had revealed himself clearly in the, the things that are made. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. And down in 23, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And here in 24 and 25, Paul's continuing that thought that he began in 18 by declaring God's judgment on this unrepentant sin. What is the temporal penalty for refusing to honor God or give thanks to him? What is it for this wrath in verse 18 to be revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men? That's what 24 and 25 and the following verses begin to unpack for us. Our plan is simply to walk through these verses with three phrases to hang our thoughts on. Here they are. One, God gave them up. Two, because of idolatry. Three, God be praised. Sorry, it's just the best we're going to do tonight. God gave them up because of idolatry. God be praised. Look at 24 again. Therefore, God gave them up. Or, or maybe God delivered them in the lust of their hearts, to impurity, the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. This is God's response to the foolishness of 22 and 23. Remember, they claim to be wise, but they are fools, and they exchange the glory of God, that immortal glory of our Heavenly Father, for images resembling mortal things. As a result, God gave them up. That may be troubling for you to consider this. That when faced with unrepentant sinners, our God is not idle. It's not as if God only responds to people who come to him in faith. God responds to all people. The, the verb here of, of gave them up is a. It's an active verb. God is doing something. He's not remaining idle. He is punishing those who alienate themselves from His goodness. How did they do that? They refused to, to, to give honor to Him as the one who clearly created all things. That word there, gave them up or delivered, is the same word that you would find uh, in other places. Uh, like, like when Jesus was delivered over to Pilate. It's a word that speaks to someone being given over to the police or into a prison. The Lord has given him, given them up. He's made himself known in the world. 
And for those who refuse to acknowledge him, he gives them up to their sin. This idea is not foreign in the pages of Scripture. This is not a unique thing that Paul has created. All over the Old and New Testaments, you see when God's word goes out, it is, it's, it's divisive, right? On one side, the sheep, on the other side, the goats. It converts or condemns. It softens and hardens. Think about 2 Corinthians chapter 2, where Paul writes about it. Speaking of being the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. He's saying when the word goes out, it's an, it's an aroma of Christ to God. And as the gospel is preached, it's going to those who will be saved and it's going to those who will be perishing. And he says to one of them, a fragrance from death to death and to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Jesus himself told us that the kingdom of God would find divisions arising even in nuclear families, that fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters would be divided against each other. This is the nature of the kingdom of God. It's the nature of the gospel is to divide. It sets apart a people for God from the worldly place of sin. The gospel is not idle. In the confession of faith, in chapter 5, speaking about providence, the divines help us think through what exactly God's justice means for those who refuse to acknowledge Him and turn to Christ. What does it say about these unbelieving people that we're talking about here? This is Confession of Faith 5.6. says, For those wicked and ungodly men whom God, as a righteous judge for former sins, does blind and harden, from them He not only withholds His grace, whereby they might have been enlightened in their understandings and wrought upon in their hearts, but sometimes also he withdraws the gifts which they had and exposes them to such objects as their corruption makes occasions of sin and withal gives them over to their own lusts, the temptations of the world and the power of Satan, whereby it comes to pass that they harden themselves, even under those means which God uses for the softening of others. God is not idle when it comes to those who refuse to acknowledge him. He gives them up to their sin and depravity. What does He give them up to? Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. The words here are important. Sinful mankind has a desire in their hearts. It's a strong desire. It's, it's, a, it's a craving even. That word lust. They have a longing for impurity, for, for immorality. There's going to be more detailed descriptions of this immorality in later passages, and so we won't get into all the nitty-gritty tonight. But for simply simply for now, observe this. Their idolatry, their lack of honor for the Lord. That lack of, of gratitude toward Him is not something that exists only in their minds. Okay? It's not as if they see that God exists and they just choose to click that switch in their brain and not think about Him anymore. And then they can go on with their lives like the rest of us. 
It's not simply a matter of intellect. You know, an atheist, which doesn't really exist, is not just against God in their mind. That This refusal to honor and thank the Lord extends to their hearts and to their lives. Indeed, we were like them. The depth of depravity goes to the very bottom of who we are. There is, along with this refusal to acknowledge God, there is a heart desire that comes with it. And it is a desire for wrong. It is a desire for impurity. It is a desire for immorality. And it is the desire to which God gives them. Their idolatry leads to their immorality. Therefore, God, therefore, is is based on that idolatrous language of verse 23. They exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling man and birds and animals and creeping things. And so, verse 25, God gave them up to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. They were they were suffering from the sin called idolatry, which is the root of all of our sin. Therefore, God gives them up to that immorality that it naturally leads to and that they desire in their hearts. One commentator named Linsky says, Men who so love the cesspool of sin are sent into it by justice. What they want, they shall have. It's the wickedness of sin that it only leads to more and more displeasure and disconnect from God as Heavenly Father and Creator. Several preachers point out at this point that Paul is moving, uh, rather is, is proving empirically the existence of sin and the existence of God's wrath in the world. Essentially, Paul is saying, look around do you see the immorality of the world? Do you see do you see how so many are given up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves? He says that is God's temporal judgment and wrath upon them for their sin. You know, over the course of time, you hear things like, well, Katrina was God's judgment on New Orleans. Or this was God's judgment on this people. Or this was God's judgment on this other people. Just look around the world. The immorality that exists everywhere is proof that God's judgment is upon the world. Not any singular place or people, but everywhere. Everything under heaven has been cursed by the fall and praise the Lord that he's called so many to himself already in the course of time. But still, the world is under God's judgment. Why? Because he has given them over to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Now let's take a moment and, and I want to make three observations, three notes rather, for verse 24. First is this. In all of this, and God's delivering them over to the lust of their hearts, and God's giving them up to the sin which they love, God is not the author of sin. The sin finds no source in Him. It finds no foundation in the Almighty. Sin comes out of the creature who has rebelled against Him. There's plenty of places you can go. Psalm 5, For you are a God 
not who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. Or in the New Testament, in John's first epistle, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you. What? You know this, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. How do you square this up? Is God in control? Yes. Has he ordered all things to his intended end? Yes. Is he active and moving everything in those ways? Yes. Does sin still happen? How loud are we allowed to yell in the sanctuary, right? Yes. Of course. It's in here. It's in here. It's out there. Sin is is pervasive, is it not, in our experience of life? Is God not in control then? Our confession of faith again in chapter 3, speaking of God's decrees and, and, and His sovereignty over all things, says God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of His will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass, yet so as thereby neither is God the author of sin. Sin does not come from Him. It comes from us. So make note of that, and we'll, we'll elaborate more on that as we go, as, as God is going to two more times in verse 26 and verse 28 give them up to their sin. We'll talk more about this. But always remember, as we work our way through here, that God is not the author of sin. It has no origin in Him. Secondly here, I want to speak to any of you in here that may be unbelieving yet. Any of you that may not have yet trusted in Christ as their Savior. Maybe you're a young person and you've yet to profess faith. Maybe you're an adult who does not know the Lord. This is my word to you. Be warned. Even now, even now, this word proclaims judgment over you if you not will repent and turn to Christ in faith. You have sinned against the holy and living God, the one who made you and the one who sustains you, the one who loves the world and so sent his son to redeem a people for himself. It is against him that all of us have sinned. And he will save you if you would trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe that he died in your place when you deserve to believe that he has counted righteousness to you. Believe that he is no longer dead in that grave, but is ruling and reigning from his throne in heaven. Believe these things. But be warned that if you won't believe, do not be surprised when judgment comes. C.S. Lewis has written that the doors of hell are locked from the inside. What does he mean? Nothing quite so literal. But that when we choose sin instead of God, God lets us go into it and we create a hell for ourselves. That we've chosen to be there is what he means. That's what Paul means. That we see that God exists. And if we refuse to honor and thank him, God will send us off and punish us for our disbelief. And if you choose to continue in sin, God will give you to that sin. Be warned and turn away. Thirdly, as a note on 24, for you who are in Christ, indeed, we are free from the bondage of sin. We are free from its punishment because of the cross of Jesus Christ. But sin still remains in us, doesn't it? 
Sin no longer reigns, but it remains. Beware of the nature of sin. Beware of that tendency to drift off and slack off and to let things go that you ought to be practicing as the, in, in the life of a Christian. Sin leads down a nasty road. It yields more sin and more sin and more sin. Repent and come back to the God who has saved you and who loves you. Let's look at 25. God gave them up, secondly, because of idolatry. In verse 25, Paul is sort of repeating himself. It's more or less the same content as 23, and he's repeating it to, in order to fix it deeper in our own minds. Look at 23 first. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And then look at 25, speaking about why God gave them up. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. The fundamental problem with sinful mankind, we keep coming back to it, the fundamental problem is idolatry. And it's seen here um, by, by two sorts of exchanges going on. The first one there is, is truth exchanged for a lie. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. The truth that God has made known about himself from verse 20, his invisible attributes, his eternal power have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. This truth revealed about himself has been set aside and in its place has come a lie. Consider with me the first lie told by the father of lies back in the garden. Genesis chapter 3 records. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. The serpent said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, oh, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. You see how lies begin to spread. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like him, knowing good and evil. This is the lie that we continue to fight all of our lives. That lie that says you can be your own God. That says that you can rule your own life. That says you can get by with just a wink or a nod at God and keep going your own way. It's a lie. The second exchange that takes place in this verse is connected to the lie and flows out of it. Instead of worshiping the creator, sinful man worshiped the creature because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. It's been said in several different ways over the years, and I can't remember where I heard it first, something to the effect of, it is the greatest honor of our lives that we have been made in the image of our Creator. And it has been our task ever since the fall to remake our Creator in our own image instead. John Calvin writes, 
Religious honor cannot be given to a creature without taking it away in a disgraceful and sacrilegious manner from God himself. And vain is the excuse that images are worshipped on God's account, since God acknowledges no such worship nor regards it as acceptable. And the true God is not then worshipped at all, but a fictitious God whom the flesh has devised for itself. When we choose to worship something that has been created, I mean, take your pick. When we choose to worship something that has been created, even if we have a vain excuse that we're seeking to worship God through it, like they did with the bull in Exodus, even that is is wrong and goes against God's law because it is a fictitious God that we're worshiping and he does not receive worship of that kind. Idolatry, that this, this is the lie. That there is something else that we can worship and give ourselves to and somehow find something. Lincoln Duncan is the one that has such helpful things to say about idolatry. He says in the first place that idolatry means worship, worshiping anything that is not the true God. Be careful when you think about idolatry in your own life. Idolatry is not, as we too often think, something bad that we've made good. Somebody else said this, I don't remember who. Idolatry is worshiping something good that we make the best. It can be anything. Most of the time it is something good. The best things make the best idols. It's easy to worship money, isn't it? And things, and people, and friends, and family. It's easy to worship yourself. We think so highly of ourselves, we make the best idols, don't we? Dr. Duncan says that our idolatry manifests in a couple of ways. He says either we will have a tendency to remake God, or we start to disbelieve what the scriptures have written about him. We remake him in such a way that he will not poke his nose in our business. We choose to create a God that doesn't really care if we sin in these particular ways that we love. That's, that's not really what he cares about. He just wants us to, you know, love him and, and, and try to walk with him as best we can. It doesn't matter what our lives look like. We've remade God in our own image at that point, haven't we? He says, on the other hand, we can make an idol out of something by vesting all our desire for significance and security and control and comfort in that thing instead of in God. You know, what do you think is going to fix it? What's your circumstantial trouble? This is very, very shallow. What's your circumstantial trouble that you think you can fix with money before you go to God in prayer? You know, what's, what's, what's the financial trouble that you have that I somehow think I can fix with a spreadsheet instead of with prayer? What's the sin that you're fighting against that you think you're good enough to kill on your own and you haven't gone to God in prayer? What do you think you can just be good enough that the Lord will let you into heaven one day? And we're not that blatant about it though, are we? These are idols. This is idolatry. When we make an idol of something by vesting all our desire for significance and security and control and comfort in that thing instead of in God. Friends, it is this idolatry that exists in all of our hearts. It is this idolatry against which the wrath of God is revealed. It's in all of us. And then a fascinating thing happens in the middle of verse 25. I hope that you notice how strange it is. 
Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. Amen. You know, you might think to yourself, was Paul praying? I don't, I don't recall him starting a prayer. Not like the end of Ephesians chapter 3 where he starts praying and it's clear and he says amen at the end of it. And it makes sense to us. He's articulating a doctrine of sin. What is going on? It's very common with Paul. But it usually comes at the end of a section on the glories of the gospel, like the end of Romans 11. But Paul here is explaining the, the horrible state of sinful mankind. They, are, they clearly perceive God in the world around them and in the hearts that he's put inside of them. But they refuse. We have refused in our sin to honor God. We have refused to give thanks to him. He says they have preferred rather to live in the lust of their hearts in immorality and dishonor. And Paul then mentions there that, that they have worshipped the creature rather than the creator. And in Pauline fashion, upon mentioning the creator, he is struck with a wave of desire to vindicate God's name. The creator who is blessed forever. What's he saying? It doesn't matter what you think of the Lord. It doesn't matter if you honor him. It doesn't matter if you thank him. It doesn't matter if you have believed the truth. It doesn't matter if you have worshipped him. Jeffrey, Jeffrey Wilson says here, it is quite impossible for a man actually to succeed in his sinful attempt to diminish God's glory. What does Paul say? He is blessed forever. John Murray says it is an affirmation to the effect that transcendent blessedness belongs to God. And the implication is that the dishonor done by men does not detract from this intrinsic and unchangeable blessedness. God is blessed forever. Now, there's nothing that you can do to take away from who he is and what he has done. What do you make? Of this God who gives sinners over to their sin. What do you make of this God who lets sinners live in the desires of their heart? Friends, this description of God's judgment upon sin is what you and I deserve. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But consider in the face of it what God has done for you in Christ. All in Romans, he writes these things. Chapter 9. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? You know, what if God has chosen to reveal his wrath against those who deserve it? in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. You know, all it takes to, to be one of those vessels of mercy that God displays his glory in is to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, to depend upon him for everything. There's not a list somewhere of those who are dedicated to mercy and those who are dedicated to wrath. The Bible says that all it takes for you to move from one category to the other is to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, to believe on him for salvation and freedom from sin and death, glory and blessedness forever. 
Remember what Paul writes in chapter 5, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Later on, he says, for as by the one man's disobedience, this is Adam, by the way, by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by Christ's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Jesus died so that you don't have to die. You deserve to die, mark it. But no longer if you're in Christ. Later on in chapter 6, the blessed assurance of what it is to walk with God. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. And we've been set free from the demands of the law because Christ has fulfilled them for us. He died in our place and he fulfilled the requirements of the law for us. So that we can be welcomed by God, justified, adopted, and in the process of being sanctified and one day glorified. What a blessing. And so I would encourage you to join with Paul here at the end of of a sermon all about sin. And add your amen to his. John Murray says, by adding amen, the apostle voices the assent of his heart and mind to the glory which the preceding formula attributes to God. He says, the amen here is the response of worship. And that ought to be our response as well. Respond to the description of the bad news with worship. God is blessed forever. And he has saved all those who will draw near to him by faith in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So I'll ask you again, will you draw near to him tonight? Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our God. Father in heaven, please send your Holy Spirit for the sake of our Lord Jesus to write the truth of your word upon our hearts that we may not sin against you. We yearn to be free from sin. We thank you that in Christ we are free from its bondage and one day we'll be free from it entirely. Come, O Lord, and stir us up with faith that we may find freedom from wrath and that we may know what it is to live truly in our Lord Jesus. We ask it all in his name. Amen.